If you have your Bibles, we're going to open up one last time to Habakkuk. We're going to look in Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. And we've been trying to think over the last couple of messages really about what it means to trust God. We talked about a couple of different aspects of that. As we're jumping from chapter to chapter, you have uh, you've been here, you've, you've noticed we've, we've, there's some gaps in the text that we have not hit. And, um, and so I've just tried to hit three, three aspects of this. Um, and, and really, when we are able to get sucked into a book, which we've not really been able to do that as much this weekend, but if you were to go back and, and take some time and work your way through Habakkuk, um, one of the blessings, at least I think for me, one of the blessings of being able to, to just pour yourself into a book for a little while is you feel like you really get to know uh, the, the characters there, the people there. You feel like you really get to know Habakkuk. You get finished with the book and, and you uh, have a little bit of anticipation of one day being able to not just, uh, obviously we're primarily anticipating the day that we can fellowship with Christ face to face, but you know, one day we'll fellowship with Habakkuk face to face as well. We'll be able to ask him some questions about what things were like and filling in some of the gaps maybe that were here. As far as the timeline goes, Habakkuk, when he's finished with this book, God comes to him. We said yesterday, he tells him that the Chaldeans or the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to destroy Judah and take them into exile. Uh, if we're thinking chronologically here, big picture wise, um, Lamentations might be where we would go next and see Jeremiah's response. Habakkuk's anticipating this. Jeremiah's looking back on it and he's just weeping over the desolation of the holy city there. Um, it's going to be interesting, I think, one day to sit down with Jeremiah, a man of faith. Uh, not just in Lamentations, but the book of Jeremiah, to be able to ask him some questions. We spend time in that book, and it leaves us with questions, curiosities. Next, we might jump to Daniel and see what did it look like to be carried into Babylon for 70 years. You know, Daniel outlived the whole thing. He saw his people go back. He was there the entire time. And it just amazes us at times to see the faith of God's people. It makes me, anyway interested in asking some questions. But did you know that whenever we get to heaven, Daniel's going to have some questions for you too? You know Habakkuk's probably going to have some questions for you too? There are times where we can think that we're living in some insignificant days, but we're living in the most significant days that God's kingdom has ever known. That is the days where Christ is ruling and reigning and he is building his church. And I'm not necessarily talking about your generation and my generation, but I'm talking about the kingdom era that we are living in, that Christ is building his kingdom in. And so, brothers and sisters, sometimes we feel like we're just limping along and we're halfway defeated as we face the trials of life, but the truth is, is that he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world, and it's your faith that's overcoming the world, and whenever we see what's happening in the life of a believer from a heavenly perspective, it is incredible, and much of the time our problem is we're looking at it from the wrong vantage point. So as we look at Habakkuk, 
and we think about what it means to trust God, what it means to, for the just to live by faith, um, I just want to encourage you that God is far more committed to you running your race in faith than you are. You know that? God's not banking on you to be a hero. God is the hero. Christ is the hero of this story. And he's the one who, through providential circumstances and through the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word in your life that is cultivating a life of faith, a witness to the world, a life that is pleasing, sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. So we would be way off base if we were to spend some time thinking about what it meant to trust God. Obviously, we're thinking about it in practical terms, but this doesn't put us in a performance-based relationship with God. So God's not giving you an A, a D, or an F. He is for you. He is working in you. He is providing the things that you need. And many times we miss all of that. So Habakkuk chapter 3 is where we're going to end today. This chapter is, we mentioned it maybe on Friday, this chapter is a lot more like a psalm if you were to uh, just compare it to different uh, genres of Scripture. Habakkuk at this point, the way the book has gone, he's asked God, what are you doing? Why are you not doing anything? God says, I am doing something, but you're not going to believe it when I tell you. The Chaldeans, a group of people who are even more wicked than you, are going to be raised up to judge Judah. Habakkuk says, how in the world can this be, Lord? You are holy. You can't even look upon sin. How could you be using this sinful nation Then we make our way to chapter 2 where Habakkuk says, I'm going to stand on my watch. I'm going to wait for what the Lord has answered. And then the Lord in the last part of chapter 2 says, Habakkuk, I know there's, I'm paraphrasing obviously, I know there's some tension between what you know about me and what I just told you I'm going to do, but um, after I get finished judging Judah, I'm going to turn around and judge Babylon for their wickedness as well. They don't get a free pass. And so then we get to chapter 3. It begins in verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shiganoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years, and the midst of the years make known in wrath remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise, and his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence, and the burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea? And thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation. Thy bow was made quite naked according to the oaths of the tribes. Even thy word, Selah, thou didst cleave 
the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear... Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou wounded the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation under the neck. Selah. Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his village, or the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses, through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my belly trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble when he cometh up unto the people." He will invade them with his troops. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hind's feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. And so Habakkuk 3 really is Habakkuk's resolve. He comes to the place here where he has accepted what God has allowed. Now, I read that entire chapter. It's not, you know, 19 verses here. And really, we start out and... And the first part makes sense. We can get very, very lost in the middle of that. And then we're all pretty familiar with uh, the last part, starting in verse 17. And so one of the things about understanding, uh, how to understand, I guess, Scripture, is, is understanding how to deal with the different genres in Scripture. And this is not a big lesson on that. But when we get to a section like this that's very poetic, sometimes we... We think about understanding Scripture line by line by line by line. And, and when we get to things like epistles and, and, and that sort of a thing, then that's what we ought to do. We're meant to look at the text to be able to understand what it is that's being said. One of the things that I found very helpful is that whenever we come to poetic-type passages like this, we're meant to look through those to see the truth that's being conveyed. Here's what I mean by that. If I were to tell you that we were going to exposit the poem, Roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. And I said, let's think about the word rose for a little bit. And I gave you every definition I could think of. And then I said, let's think about blue for a minute. Okay, we're already missing the point, aren't we? The poem is not about a rose. And it's not about blue. Those things are meant to describe, build up to. We need to be looking through those to see that what that little poem is really talking about is the depth of someone's love for another person. It has nothing to do with the color blue, has nothing to do with the rose, outside of just the illustration that a rose has roseness about it and blue has blueness about it, but definitions don't help us there. 
Okay, same thing. Whenever we approach a passage like this, we're meant to look through and see what is it that Habakkuk is doing? What is he getting at? What is he referring to? Obviously, what he's referring to brings him comfort in the end, but sometimes we can get lost in the details wondering how in the world did you get from verse 1 down to verse 17? And so we want to think about it, at least this morning, for time's sake, we want to think about this conceptually. First, we said this already, but I'll say it again, chapter 3 is really where Habakkuk is communicating, and we see that he has accepted what God has allowed. You know, one of the hardest things in life is to do that, but really one of the, one of the greatest works that God does in a believer as we go through different trials and different crises in life is when we can get to the point to where we can accept what God has allowed into our lives because God allows a lot of hard things to enter into our lives. Sometimes we can just stay in the shock of things and never get past how could this happen. You may know this, but the book of Lamentations in the Hebrew Bible, the title is not Lamentations. The title is How. How. If you look at that book, the word how is the beginning of, um, I think it's three out of the five chapters. It may be four out of the five chapters. I can't remember now. But it's as if Jeremiah looks back and says, Lord, how? How could you let this happen? How could this be where we are now? It really does capture what we're talking about this morning. Eventually, we have to accept, we have to come to the place, not to where we accept that this was pleasant, but we accept God's sovereignty. This is where He has me. This is what He has allowed to happen in my life. And so I want to talk about four things before we really get to the text. This is kind of preliminary. Four things that we're going to have to wrestle with if we're going to move forward in trusting God. The title of the message this morning is Trusting God for Who He Is. Trusting God for Who He Is. And let me give one more illustration, and then I promise we'll get to the text. Sometimes we can think through the matters of what it means to trust God, and and we can walk away, and all we come up with is, that was really convicting. And conviction's fine, that's good. But conviction's meant to lead somewhere. Conviction in and of itself isn't, isn't good. Conviction is meant to lead you to repentance and to lead you to Christ. Okay? So when we're thinking about these kinds of things, growth in general, but trusting in God is a major component in that. I like to illustrate it this way. Uh, whenever I was young, my grandmother used to love to knit us things. Um, she was always knitting something. And um, me and my cousins... I think there were about 12 of us, and she would knit us these socks. And um, so my, my dad was born in Israel. He came here when he was eight, and, and so that was his mom, and we called her Tita, which means grandmother in, in Arabic. And so we called them Tita socks. She would knit us these socks. And they were always about 5,000 times too big uh, for what it actually was supposed to fit. And, and she would knit us these sweaters, and I've still got a sweater today that would look like a miniskirt if I were to wear it. I mean, it is huge, and there was no way that I was ever going to be able to wear that thing. Um, 
But when she would knit us these things and, and, and she would give us these and we would put them on, and of course eventually it became kind of comical to us when we realized before we even got them that there was no way we would actually be able to use these things, um, we would say, Tita, they're, just, they're, they're big, they're too big. And she would say, oh, oh, you'll grow into them, you'll grow into them. Well, when we're thinking about these kinds of things, when we're thinking about what it means for us to trust God in these various aspects, it's a lot like the socks my grandmother used to knit. We're meant to grow into these things. Okay? We, we try to put them on at first, and they're just very awkward. It doesn't fit very well. We're not comfortable functioning in them. And God says, don't worry, you'll grow into it. You'll grow into it, okay? A little bit at a time. Through my providential dealings with you, through the way that the Spirit's going to use the Word, through the fellowship that you have with my people, Philippians 1.6, I'm committed to the fact you're going to grow into this. So, brothers and sisters, if you walk away from this weekend and you think, man, that sure was convicting, and I sure am missing it, and that's all you walk away with, you're not getting the full picture. You're headed this way, and so am I. And God is more committed than you are to make sure that you grow into this thing that we call trusting God, that there's no question in his mind that you will arrive one day. Isn't that a blessing? So don't think about this as I'm getting beat up by the word. Or don't think about this as hopefully if I feel guilty enough, then I'll start trying harder. Now, if you're convicted and there's some things you need to change, then that's one thing. But this is never meant to put us on a performance-based relationship. Really what we're doing here is we're unfolding what Christ has secured for you on the cross. And this is part of you being reconciled back to God. You know, we'll have a lot of regrets, I think, whenever we die, and that's just the the nature of living in a sin-cursed world. But I do think one of the biggest regrets we'll ever have is uh, if we really get a clear view of this is that we were so apprehensive to just crawl up in the Lord's lap, that we were just so apprehensive to believe that He really did love us as much as He said He did, and we really were as welcome as He said we were. And so as we're thinking about this, again, it's much more accurate to think about it relationally than it is to think about it abstractly. This is a God who's bringing you into relationship with himself. And this is one of the things that we have to work through to get there, or at least to deepen that. So let me give you some things as far as trusting God for who he is. Let me give you some things that are good markers for us. And I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm getting ready to hurt your feelings. So that's why I prefaced it with what I just said. Um, so number one, when we're thinking about trusting God for who he is, pride and trust are not compatible. Pride and trust are not compatible. You cannot demand to have your way and trust God at the same time. Okay? It just doesn't work. Those are two opposite directions. And so as we seek to grow in our trust from God, our trust with God, we have to also grow in killing self, denying self, because pride and trust are just not compatible. Number two, discontentment and trust are not compatible. You cannot be consumed with dissatisfaction in God's providential provisions 
and trust in God at the same time. You know, we talked about it yesterday, but sometimes we can just get so paralyzed and waiting on the Lord because we're so dissatisfied with the season of life we're in and the provisions that He's given us, and we're thinking this, all this stuff must change and we must get past this before we can really grow or we can really enjoy or we can really serve the Lord. That's a lie. That's a lie. Discontentment and trust, dissatisfaction with God and trust are just not compatible. Number three, self-pity and trust are not compatible. Self-pity and trust are not compatible. And by the way, as I'm going through these, these aren't for you to collect so you can tell somebody else. These are for you to meditate on for yourself. Okay? These are, we, we all wrestle with these, all four of these. You cannot nurture a heart that is set on how unfair God and life has been to you and trust God at the same time. You can't do that. Now, it's easy to slip into that, isn't it? It really is. If you say this, I haven't heard you say it this weekend, so I'm not talking about you. I know plenty of people at home that say this, and you ask them, you know, how you doing, and they say better than you deserve, and I think you don't believe that for a second. None of us do. Now, abstractly, maybe, but we don't believe that. We don't believe that. We have to fight against the self-pity, this idea that we deserve more than what the Lord has given us. And then lastly, it's kind of an encapsulating statement. Waiting for God to get on board with my agenda and accept my will is not even in the ballpark of what it means to trust God. It's not even close. Salvation means that God is using, again, His Word, His providence, His people, His provisions to shape our hearts to love His will, His agenda, His kingdom. And many times we can get all that mixed up. And honestly, it's not, there's not a real mystery as to why that is, even outside of our own flesh that we have to wrestle with. I mentioned it yesterday, but a lot of the faith-based movies are, are, are all right here. They're all right here. I'm not mad at these guys who have done it, and I don't necessarily think they shouldn't have, but a lot of times the messages that are sent are just not in reality. Remember, I, I can't remember the, the, the football one that came out, uh, but you'll know what I'm talking about. I don't remember the title, but the guy that has had a losing season and his career's in the tank and his car breaks down and his wife can't have kids. And, and how does it end up? Well, within a year, lo and behold, somebody decides to give him a brand new truck. The football team is winning the state championship. And by the time it's done, his wife is pregnant. Well, if all that happened, praise the Lord, but that's not usually the way that works. Um. And, and, and when it doesn't work that way, God is still good. God is still merciful. God is still gracious. And one of the things that we'll learn as we walk with him is that just because something feels bad doesn't mean it is bad. As a matter of fact, most of the time, the things that feel bad will grow us the most. So that's a long enough introduction. Let's look at the text here. 
trusting God for who He is. Trusting God for who He is. Let's look at the first couple of verses here, 1 and 2. Prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, on Shiganoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy. He says, Lord, I've heard what you've said, and I was afraid. But I'm going to ask that you would please revive your work in the midst of the years. What he's saying here is, I have accepted the fact that judgment is coming. I have accepted the fact that Babylon is going to bring a severe judgment upon Judah. But Lord, based upon what I know about you, based upon the fact that you are a covenant-keeping God, you know, the word mercy there is the word for God's covenant loyalty, His covenant love, His compassion. But It's all wrapped around this covenant that He's made. And so He says, Lord, revive Your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. So if we're going to trust God for who He is, number one, number one, we're learning to trust God's mercy, to trust in God's mercy. Do you know that God's disposition toward His people is mercy all the time? There's never a time where that's not the case. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. You know what that means? that God's only merciful to people that He wants to be merciful to. And if He's ever been merciful, He's always been merciful. Right? He's very selective about who He draws into this mercy relationship, this loyal covenant love. And then when He begins to express what this looks like, it's just beautiful. I mean, we could go to a lot of different places, but... It's just a beautiful expression. Let's, uh, several of them. Let's look in Isaiah 49 for a minute. Isaiah 49. In Isaiah 49, verse 13... It says, Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth in singing, O mountains. For the Lord hath comforted His people, and will have mercy upon His afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. And this is what the response is. Verse 15, Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands, and thy walls are continually before me. He uses this familiar illustration to anyone who's had children or even seen others with children. He asked this question, can a woman forget her sucking child? Now, unfortunately, the answer to that is yes. Yes. Our natural response to that, or at least most of our natural responses to that, would be no, of course not. If you've ever mothered a child, or if you've ever watched your wife mother a child, or thought about your own re- your, the way you interact with the, your children as a man, 
you think that would be un, that's that's unthinkable. That's unthinkable. But the truth is, in our world, in a fallen world, this this happens all the time. But if we take this illustration and we think about, as far as just the instinctive nature of most most mothers, um, it really is a challenge when you have children, particularly small children, not to center your entire existence around their care, isn't it? Now, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that's the way it is. I mean, it's a full-time job. It's, it, you, you never stop. And if you're going to care for them, and if you're going to care for them well, then you're going to be very, very, very attentive one of the things that you'll do is um, you will do things that you would have never preferred to do, and you'll do them in love. What I mean by that is young mothers and, and fathers that help out in this area as well, you very quickly get used to, uh, I don't know that you ever get used to it, but you, you, you come to grips with, I, I'm not going to be sleeping through the night for a while. But that doesn't make you bitter toward your child. That's just what it takes to take care of your child, right? Most of you know David has a a bowel disease, and um, he's nine. We're just now getting to where we can steadily sleep through the night. Um, For the first five, six, seven years of his life, we knew that somewhere between midnight and two, we were going to wake up to a little boy covered in poop with sheets covered in poop. And so it was go upstairs, get him, scrub him down, get those sheets in the wash, get him in the bed with us, and hope we could all fall back asleep. Well, we did that, and I never got up saying yay. But you know that never made me mad at him? Never did. As a matter of fact, what we needed to do was clean him up so we could bring him back and embrace him and go to sleep. Do you know God's disposition toward you is a whole lot more like that than it is him standing in disappointment that he has to help? He wants to help. It's unthinkable that we would leave our children in a mess, that we would leave our children in need for most of us. Now, you think about God's heart if your heart is like that. If we being sinful, again, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more our Father, which is in heaven... Brothers and sisters, I think one of the surprises we will have in eternity is the depths of God's mercy toward us, just how tender God's affections are toward his children. He says, can a nursing mother forget her sucking child? You might, but he says, I will not forget you. You know what that means? Think about, think about, this, think about this even from a predestination and election standpoint. You know what it means that you've been predestined by God? It means you've been on God's mind for a long, long time. He's been thinking about you. You know, when we think about predestination and election, sometimes we're tempted to think about it in some big general conglomerate as if God knew all of his people from the standpoint of, this is my herd. You know, you've seen a herd of cattle. Maybe if I'm not a farmer, so I, I may be messing this illustration up. But if I see a herd of cattle, I can't distinguish one from the other. I just know they all belong in the same group. That's not the way election works. 
that's not the way God works with his people. You know, he knows each of his sheep by name. He is mindfully attentive to each one of his children. And so even in the most difficult times, we can trust that God's disposition toward me right now is mercy. It's mercy. Psalm 103, give us the same same sort of description from a different vantage point. Psalm 103 Verse 13, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. Like a father that pities his child, the word pity there is is to have compassion on. The Lord has compassion on them that fear him. He knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. You know, I think the problem is many of the times, uh, many many times we forget that we're dust. We we think that that we're more than what we actually are. Now we can grow in obedience to please God, and that's something that we ought to be interested in. But brothers and sisters, you should never think and never be motivated by this idea that we need to grow in obedience in order to impress God. That doesn't work. Your, 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 your most valiant efforts are as filthy rags, right? God's not impressed with any of that. It's of Him that we grow, that we live, that we breathe, that we have our being. It's of Him, Hosea says, that your fruit is found. And so when we're thinking about this whole business of trusting and growing closer to the Lord, one of the things we need to remember is that we're growing closer to someone who is so tender and compassionately attentive to his children that he's not holding us at arm's length. He's using our circumstances. He's using his word. He's using his provisions and his spirit to draw us near, to draw us to himself. Psalm 23 says, Surely, you know this, the way the psalm ends, Surely, this is a statement of confidence, Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Scripture is meant to be used to some extent as an interpretive lens to help us make sense out of what's going on. I didn't talk about this, but at the end of Habakkuk chapter 1, one of the areas whenever I was preaching through this at Ripley was cultivating uh, or was uh, trusting God through cultivating a sound mind. You know, trusting God has a lot to do with how we interpret life. And, and we do need to cultivate a sound mind, that is, just see things the way God sees them in order to do that and to grow. But you know, in the midst of the temptations, of all the what-ifs that are out there, you know some people that live off of what-ifs, but even if you don't, we all ask that to some extent in some ways. What if this happens and what if that happens? Well, we don't know all the answers to that question, but we do know this. One of the answers that fits in the blank of any what if you ever have is, goodness and mercy will be following me all the days of my life. 
Now that word follow is a, is a word that's also translated persecute. The way I like to talk about this at, at home and, and as far as a, just really unpacking what's being said here in Psalm 23 is that goodness and mercy will violently hunt you down until the day you die. Isn't that a beautiful picture? God is on your trail. His goodness, His mercy is out to get you. So we're trusting in His mercy. Well, brothers and sisters, we know this already, but I'll just remind you, when we're thinking about trusting in God's mercy, the fullest expression of God's mercy that we find is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Think about this from Hebrews chapter 2. Just just get some beautiful realities here in Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, here the writer of Hebrews is talking about the fact that when, when Christ came, He didn't come... And with the nature of angels, but he came and he, and he took upon himself the, the, the nature of, of humanity, Abraham's seed. Could have come any way he wanted to come, but this is how he chose to come, the God-man. And then verse 17 gives us an explanation of why he did that. It says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. We could say it this way. Wherefore, in all things, it was necessary for him to be made like unto his brethren. It's not necessary because we're imposing something on God. It's necessary because this is what he chose to do. If he were going to be the, high, the kind of high priest that he set out to be, this is the way it was going to have to happen. So it, was, it behooved him why? That, it might, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or to provide the appropriate help to them that are tempted. Now, this is a beautiful passage. We could spend a weekend in these two verses and not even scratch the surface. But here's, what we, here's, here's essentially what's being said. Jesus Christ thought it was necessary to have first-hand experience in the trials and difficulties that you and I go through so that it might make him a more compassionate high priest. Isn't that beautiful? You know, you don't have to go through the same thing that other people go through in order to be compassionate, but if you have gone through the same thing that other people have gone through, it's almost like it's second nature. You know, I, I told you yesterday that most of the time I'm like this, not too high, not too low. Um, I, can, I can be moved by, and, and the, more, the older I get, the more I am, but um, when it comes to like TV shows and stuff like that, I mean, it's just a show. It doesn't really do much for me. Um, and I've usually always been that way. But, you know, after we spent our time in the hospital with David, we spent, you know, about six weeks there, and we got to see not just our own experience, but we, we had a, a, a lady down the hall from us that we had made friends with, and, and her little boy Landon was 
very sick, and, and he ended up dying while he was there. And so she walked out without her baby, and it was just very, it was just incredibly sad. And, and then we had people that had been there for uh, a long, long, long time, and were there a long time after us. And, and just getting to know those people and know the, the struggles firsthand and being able to see them, uh, I can't see a, a, a commercial about a children's hospital without weeping now, honestly. Um, I don't will myself to weep. I just do because I just, there's, there's a connection there, and I can understand there's a whole lot more going on behind the scenes of those kids in the frame of the commercial than what's being said. Well, you know that whenever Christ looks at you, this is, what, this is the kind of thing we're talking about? You don't have to say anything. He knows. Now, you're invited to say things, but, but here's the other beautiful thing about it. There are times where, and, and we know that the Holy Spirit makes up for the things that we can't put into words, but there are times where we just feel clumsy and we're fumbling around and, and we don't even know how to pray. But you know, when, when we do come to the Lord and we, we do the best that we can to put our experience into words, He knows how to fill in the gaps because He has firsthand experience with the kinds of trials and temptations that we face. When we sing, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, man, that's something, isn't it? You don't even have to tell me. I, I know, I know, and I love you, and I'm helping you. It's the same picture we get in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, when it says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We can come with confidence, confidence not in ourselves, but confidence in the fact that we've been washed in His blood, we've been brought into relationship with Him, and confidence in the fact that He is moved with the feelings of our infirmities and he stands ready to give us help and, and grace. And the word grace there is really a, a descriptor, a, a help in our times of need. He doesn't get annoyed with us. We don't become obnoxious to him. He knows. He cares. He loves. He helps. So trusting in God's mercies. Trusting in God's mercies. Secondly... We go back to Habakkuk. Not only are we trusting in God's mercies, and I don't have time to unpack all of this, so I'm just going to give you the, give you the uh, kind of the bullet points of it. And if you want to go back and look, you can see. In verses 3 through 16, Habakkuk is recalling God's past faithfulness to his people. He's doing this in some poetic ways, and some of this we, we just have to do our best, but some of it's pretty clear. Verse 4 says, And his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence, and the burning coals went forth at his feet. And he goes on and describes all these poetic things. Perhaps in verse 4 he's referring to the Shekinah glory, the manifestation of God's presence that stood between Israel and the Egyptians as Israel was led out of the desert. Verse 5 perhaps is referring to the plagues of Egypt. You'll notice this wouldn't be in chronological order. Verse 8, maybe the parting of the Red Sea. I think that's probably what's being referred to there. And, and we get this... Um, um, little tidbit. 
in verse 8, whenever he says, Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea that thou didst ride upon the horses and thy chariots of salvation? Thy bow was made quite naked according to the oaths of the tribe. Even thy words, Selah, thou did cleave the earth with the rivers. He's asking this question. Why did God do this? Was he upset with the rivers? Was he angry with the rivers? What, what would be God's motive? His wrath against the sea and so forth and so on? And the implication in a little bit will come down and make it clear that God's motive in all this was based upon his covenant faithfulness and his loyalty toward his people. Why would God do this? Why would God stand as a cloud between Egypt and Israel? Because he loves his people, that's why. Why would God part the seas and deliver his people from the hand of Pharaoh? It's because he loves his people, that's why. Why would God do any of this stuff? Why would God, in verse 11, I think it's probably referring to Joshua 10, where he held the sun so that the armies could finish out the enemy and destroy the Amorites? And Why would he do all these things? Well, verse 13 says, Thou went forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou wouldest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation under the neck, Selah, Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Again, this poetic description of what's going on. But he says it right here. Here's why you went forth. Because of the salvation of your people. The salvation of your anointed. Now the anointed is just God's special people here. You know, it's a real bolster to our faith when we can begin to recount all the ways that God has provided for us and delivered us in the past. We have amnesia about that sometimes, don't we? Sometimes our present circumstances can really cloud out what God has delivered us from in the past. That was true for Israel. That's true for us as well. But you know, a testimony is a tremendous blessing. It's a tremendous blessing for God's people, and it's a tremendous blessing for us personally. Um, Romans 5 talks about this progression of of, um, our tribulations produce patience, and patience experience. The experience there can be translated character, But you know, there really is something to that experience, isn't there? You need more than just some facts. You need to see those facts played out in real life. And thankfully, that's what God does for us. So that as you go through difficulties, as you go through trials, as you go through um, ups and downs through life, uh, I can remember um, at Ripley... Uh, you know, we went through just a whirlwind there for a little while. We didn't have a pastor, and then our church burned, and uh, we didn't know what we were doing. And I remember we were, it was the deacons, and, and, and it was me, and we were kind of talking through things, and, and Brother Claude Ewing um, almost said it in a, it, was, it almost sounded trite, but he just said, well, you know, the Lord has been faithful our entire existence, and I'm confident that's not going to change. And I thought, well, surely there's more to say than that. But there wasn't. 
And it was true. And while I was scrambling, trying to figure out the details of how all this stuff was going to work, Brother Claude had already, through experience, known, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know what he's going to do. But I know he's faithful. And so, when we were, uh, when we were planning and talking through, um, I think this was it. It was something, it was a big transit. I think it was whenever Isaac left, but it might have been something else. Um, same scenario, me and the deacons were there, and Brother Claude had passed away by then, and, and inadvertently, I mean, Brother Robert Green almost said the, the same exact thing. Well, you know, I don't know, I don't know, we can come up with all these different hypotheticals, but this is what I do know, um, the Lord has been faithful, and we expect that he'll continue to be so. Now, if you know Brother Robert, you know he doesn't have the kind of memory that would remember that Brother Claude said that several years ago. You know, that's just not him. He was displaying the same kind of faith that Brother Claude displayed back then because the Lord had been continually working and he has, his walk and relationship with the Lord had been such that he's recalling his past faithfulness and it is strengthening his future anticipation on what God's going to do. Well, again, when we think about the fullest expression of God's past faithfulness to us, we don't get any fuller than the person and work of Jesus Christ, do we? God so loved the world that He gave. He gave who? He gave what? He gave the most valuable possession He could possibly give. It's almost, uh, and this question comes up sometimes but in Scripture, but it's almost, uh, as we read that, he, he, he gave His only begotten Son. The, the question there is, what more could He do? What more could God possibly do to prove His faithfulness to His people than to give His only begotten Son, whom He loved from all eternity, His most treasured possession? 1 John 4.10, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and that He gave Christ for us. And so we ask the question, just like Romans 8 asked the question, if we've been given Christ and we've been given Christ by the Father, verse 31 says, what do you say to these things? What would we say to these things? What more can He do than what He's already done? We know this, based on this passage, Romans 8, particularly the 28 through 32. There is absolutely nothing that will separate you from the love of Christ if you're in Him. Nothing. And if what, we're, what we've been saying is true, and I believe it is, to the contrary... Those things that we might think would separate us are really intended to push us further in so that we can know more of just what we've been given in Him. That's one of the reasons why in James chapter 1, verse 2, he says that we should rejoice in these trials. Why? Because God is producing something good even though they feel bad in the moment. So, rejoicing in God's past faithfulness. 
trusting in God's past faithfulness. And then third, this is the last thing we'll look at. It's the most familiar part of this chapter, verse 17. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall the fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, the field shall yield no more meat, and the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. Again, Habakkuk 3.17 is just as pertinent for our day as it was then. And uh, the last couple of years has proven that to be even more so, though there be no baby formula on the shelf, though the, though the aisles seem empty, though gas looks like it's going to be more than I can afford, I will rejoice in the Lord. Now, we're thinking about that from a, just trying to bring it over to, to modern day, but the other, the other aspect of that is just the real losses that we experience, the real difficulties that we experience. And what we're seeing here, and really the principle that's distilled from this section, as far as what it means to trust in God, it's rejoicing in God's presence. Okay, I may not have a lot of other things, but I have Him. I may not have the earthly comforts that I've grown accustomed to, but I have Him. He's with me. When I walk through the waters, He's with me. When I walk through the fires, He's with me. He has promised me that He would never leave me. He would never forsake me. And so rejoicing in God's presence. You know, one of the reasons that we don't experience this joy is because we do not take the blessings or the difficult realities of the Bible seriously. When Jesus says, in this life you shall have tribulations, it makes for a good sermon, but we don't really believe that. We have a hard time believing that. When we read that evil men will wax worse and worse, again, makes for a good, uh, makes for a good sermon, but we don't always really believe that. One of the ways that you can tell that is when you get shocked that what the Bible says is really happening. We have a hard time believing that God is going to do what He says He's going to do. And we also have a hard time accepting these kinds of things because, again, the, the opposite of trust is unbelief. I mean, if we're thinking about opposites, that's an opposite anyway. And if we have rose-colored glasses on, the life of faith is going to be very, very difficult. You know, God has promised to make all things right at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And many times we get confused looking around wondering why that hasn't already happened. You know what I mean by that? Politically, we can get very frustrated. It just looks like insanity. Well, that can do one of two things. That can disillusion you and, and, and have you asking why in the world isn't God doing something the way Habakkuk did. Or that can cultivate in your heart a longing for the return of Jesus Christ when all things will be made right. Because here's the reality, and this is not a political rally, but it is what it is. You could, uh, 
you could plug the best candidate you can think of into office, and you know what you're going to find? Problems. Difficulties. We still live in a fallen world. Best case scenario, it's trials, 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 trials. Disappointment, 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 disappointment. And those things are meant to bring us and draw us to Christ, and it's meant to highlight the blessing of God's presence in our life. So life is supposed to be difficult. Look at the life of Christ. What is he known as? He's known as the man of sorrows who's acquainted with grief. That means grief was his friend, his constant companion. And so, brothers and sisters, when we reserve, sometimes this can be difficult, but when we reserve joy and gratitude and gladness until after our circumstances or trials have passed us, That's not biblical trust. Now, I'm not saying we don't rejoice when God delivers, but I am saying we do not withhold praise even while we're in the midst of the crucible. God is merciful and good every day, right? Right? Every morning we wake up, we are constantly receiving blessings from God. And if we're not careful, we'll get such tunnel vision and the pressures of life that we'll be blind to the blessings that God has given us. And we will think that if God would just do this and give me this and deliver me from that, then I could be happy. And that's not reality. Reality is that if I could be content knowing that God has given me himself, then I can rejoice in all things. I can be content with Christ. doesn't mean that, I'm, that life is easy, but life was never supposed to be easy. It doesn't mean that my heart isn't crushing. That's something that happens. It doesn't mean that it's uh, some sort of a trite, frivolous life. What it means is that he is my companion in the fire, that he is the lover of my soul, he is my father, he is caring for me, he is blessing me, he is strengthening me, and he is providing for my every need in Christ Jesus. And so I can move forward. And I can rejoice, not in every little thing, but I can rejoice in what God's doing in every little thing and His faithfulness. It's just looking at the things that are not seen. You know, sometimes this verse can be used in a way that's not very helpful whenever we're going through difficulties, particularly on the front end. But nevertheless, I mean, it's a very familiar verse to you. Romans 8.28 is an interpretive grid that we ought to be looking at life through. We know that all things work together for good for those who love Christ Jesus, for those who are called according to His purpose. We know that. Now what this is not saying is that all things possess a purpose in and of themselves. What it is saying is that for God's people, He is using all things to accomplish His good purposes in the life of His people. Now, again, when we're thinking about a truth like this, um, it's easy to make just blank indiscriminate. Now, again, you know what I think about the sovereignty of God based on Friday, if you were here. But it's easy to make blank, discriminate overstatements and, and, and things that aren't as detailed as they ought to be you know, like what I'm doing this morning. I've got a monologue where you don't get to talk back, so I can say it how I want to say it, and then I'm done. And unless you're just upset, you've got to shake my hand and say amen. So, you know, that, that, that's, that's not too hard. Um, it's another thing to sit across from somebody who is 
who has endured or is uh, suffering, endured evil or suffering severely, and try to work this out and think it through. You know, I think in Romans eight twenty eight, the good that's in mind is the fact that God has set out His good purpose for you and for me is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Whatever it is that comes into your life that God uses to make you more Christ-like. And that doesn't always feel good, but it is good. It's painful at times. Maybe you've heard this illustration. We'll close here. I've heard uh, this illustrated this way. There was a guy long time ago, he was a sculptor, he would take slabs of marble and he would create these different images with it. And there was a reporter that went out to uh, watch this guy. He was going to take a big slab of marble, he was going to make a, uh, a, 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 a statue, a sculpture of a, of a horse. And so the guy, the reporter goes out, he's looking the guy walks around the slab and he's feeling the veins and he's, he's, he's getting a, the layout of what he has to work with. And he studies it and studies it and studies it. And he gets ready to start chipping away. And the reporter, the journalist says, uh, how in the world are you going to turn that slab into a horse? And the guy looks at him and says, well, that's easy. I'm just going to knock off everything that doesn't look like a horse. Well, you know, that's what God's doing to you right now. His, his, his desire for you is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And when we say, Lord, how are you going to do that? He says, that's easy. I've just got to chip away everything that doesn't look like Christ. Well, that hurts. You know what that means? That means in your life and in mine, he's going to have to chip away some things that we're not ready to go away, things we're not ready to let go of things that we love, things that we're not comfortable without, things that we think we need and don't think we can live without. And God is committed in His good purposes to take those things from our hands and from our hearts. He's willing to hurt our feelings in order to make us more holy. And so as we walk through those things, it doesn't mean they're easy. It doesn't mean that we have some silly, sentimental happiness about it. What it does mean is we will rejoice in God and in His good purposes, even when they don't feel good. When we can't trace His hand, we can trust His heart. Right? We don't always know what He's doing. We don't always know what He's up to, as far as the minute details go, but we do know this. Philippians 1.6, he started a good work in us and his people. He's going to continue that good work. He's going to bring that work to a conclusion. And in the end, that good work results in unhindered face-to-face fellowship with Jesus Christ to where we enjoy him and glorify him forever. And so we say, Lord, continue that work. Continue that work and bless me to be able to rejoice and to trust in your good purpose.